the party's news and public opinion media must reflect the will of the party, mirror the views of the party, preserve the authority of the party, preserve the unity of the party, and achieve love of the party. Protection of the party and acting for the party and must maintain a high level of uniformity with the party in ideology, politics and action. Thus says Xi Jinping, who is, of course, the president of China and chairman of the party. Welcome to What China Wants. I'm joined by Sam Olson. Hello, Stuart. And by Alex Neal, who rejoins us. And the subject of today's broadcast, in the light of the lack of clear reporting out of China as to what the internal machinations of the Communist Party are, the purpose of today's podcast is to try and shine some light on that. And to that end, welcome, Alex. Morning, Stuart. Very good to be back with the podcast. Well, thank you for joining us and for taking the time. I mean, clearly, there is a distinct lack of information coming out of China. But we are in the run up now to the party congress in November, which assumes more significance than normal. Perhaps, Alex, we could just start by you informing the audience as to what exactly happens in November and why it is so important. Well, thanks very much, Stuart. The 20th Party Congress is a really important gathering for the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, not only because it's the 20th Party Congress, so there'll be a a level of celebration in, in that regard, but it's also a really momentous occasion for the overhaul and a big leadership change within the party. And thirdly, it's Xi Jinping's opportunity, potentially, to secure a third term as leader of of the Communist Party and as the supreme leader of China. So those three elements really make for quite a momentous event coming up. And there's a huge amount of speculation about how the lineup might look for the new Politburo Standing Committee. But if things follow the pattern, there will be a seventh party plenum, which is a sort of annual stock take of the party's achievements over the course of the year, and also an opportunity to plan a roadmap for the quasi-legislature in China, the National People's Congress, and also the National People's Consultative Congress, the quasi-upper house, if you want to think of it in that way, and they will create a roadmap for the next five years. And it'll be incumbent upon C, if he is to secure a third term, to really instill all of his policy planning, his propaganda, and his vision for the governance of China into that party congress, and then for that to be mapped out and imprinted as a blueprint in the two meetings, as they're called, in March next year. So that's, as I've said, that's the National People's Congress and the People's Political Consultative Congress as well. So, so Alex, just to clarify for those who, who might not be so sort of sure about the internal workings, yeah. then there's quite a lot of sort of terminology there. Yeah. But just to be clear, we have congresses, obviously, in, in the Western, you know, in America, Republican National Congress and the Democrat one, and we have the Conservative Party Convention and Labour Party Convention in the UK. They're not like that. This is actually a bringing together of government to make decisions, but as well as having sort of a flag-waving celebratory side, right? Well, there is a flag-waving celebratory side, but 
first and foremost, this is an internal party affair. So there is very little public scrutiny, or at least reporting of it while it's going on. And after the Congress, there will be a report of the Congress, which maps out what was discussed. But no, I wouldn't say this is a government type meeting. This is definitely an internal party affair. It's a closed door affair. And there's a lot of secrecy surrounding its progress and the discourse that goes on. So we'll only know actually what's happened at the 20th Party Congress when the Congress report is released. And also when we see the members of the Communist Party Politburo Standing Committee, I know there's a lot of jargon here, but the Standing Committee of the Politburo is the core leadership of the party. And at the moment, it's seven Standing Committee members. It could be more, it could be fewer than that. But the most remarkable thing about this Congress is that there's this sort of mystifying but tantalizing moment when the new leaders of the Standing Committee reveal themselves from behind a red curtain and walk onto a stage and wave at the Central Committee, the gathered delegates of the Congress. It's, it's quite a remarkable event, really, to watch. That's interesting, Alex, because one of the, the things that the apologists for authoritarianism often throw at democracies is, well, you know, we have at least a degree of certainty and consistency in policymaking and personnel. And that stability allows long-term planning, etc. What you're really saying is that this juncture, we have no idea who those seven people will be, or even if there will be seven. There's plenty of speculation about what the standing committee composition might appear to be. But you're right, we will not know, literally until these leaders step out from behind the curtain. And that's what's quite remarkable by comparison to Western democratic processes. But this process has been going on for some time, and it it involves a whole range of steps, in particular, provincial party committees and uh, municipal party committees. The the party committees in the big urban centres of China, they proposed their delegates for the Congress. I think it was back last month. So that's all been done. But what happens behind closed doors is this sort of horse trading, because this is where feudal loyalties, if you like, within the party and within the factions within the party start to dissolve. And then they are reconstituted at the party congress. So there's this huge, intensive competition that's been going on in China for the last few months. You could call it a sort of communist party metamorphosis takes place, where it builds a chrysalis around it to shield itself from any any outside interference. Then there's this sort of DNA reshuffling going on internally. And then, perhaps it's the wrong analogy, but the, the Communist Party butterfly emerges from behind the curtain in November. And the process of transparency is entirely within the party, but there is a process of submitting delegates endorsing those delegates and then the lineup, the attendance of delegates at the party congress. But but the public at large is not involved in this, no. And so what would Xi's preferred makeup of the Politburo be? What would be an indication in terms of its composition that maybe there was significant pushback 
to him, how will we judge his authority by the composition when it's revealed? Yeah, so when those figures step out onto the stage, we'll know if he has secured his legacy, if not secured backing for a third term, by members of the new standing committee stepping out who are clear devotees or loyalists to him. So there are people like CCP Central Committee, head of the general office, Ding Xiaxiang. There's also Li Tiang or Chongqing Party Secretary Chen Min'er, who's been quite acclaimed for his achievements there. There is speculation that some seats could be allocated for senior leaders of the Communist Youth League. And apparently, according to party pundits who've been looking at CCP behaviours over the last two years or so, there's competition. Xi Jinping took a dislike to the Communist Youth League and there's there's probably horse trading going on between Li Keqiang, the premier, and Xi Jinping himself to put people in that lineup. But it's incredibly opaque and it, it's really difficult to read the tea leaves, so to speak. So Alex, blunt question, but why should we in the West care about who's going to be in the Politburo, about what's going to happen in the Congress? What difference does it make to China and therefore what difference does it make to us to know about this? Yeah, well, that, that's a key question, Sam. So these standing committee members, they all have particular remits, the economy, security, propaganda, uh, the military as well. And each of those members are going to be, at least for the next five years, if not 10 years, they're going to be the architects of China's future path. And it's highly likely that that future path has been engineered by Xi Jinping, you know, his vision for the great rejuvenation of China in a so-called new era. These men are incredibly powerful characters. And I say men, but I don't think they're, in my memory, there's, there's never been a female member of the standing committee. And there's usually only one or two members of the broader Politburo. So I think it'll be interesting to see if there'll be any powerful women who emerge on the stage. I think it's unlikely if you, if you look at the potential candidates and the speculation that, that's going on. But yeah, these individuals are incredibly powerful people who are at the helm of this great power, this burgeoning superpower, which is China, the People's Republic of China. So Alex, that's sort of the composition and the politics behind it. In terms of policy, I mean, clearly, one of the things that seems to be becoming increasingly evident is that Xi Jinping's direction of travel is taking quite a heavy burden on economic activity. He was behind common prosperity and the dual circulation strategy. And although official data is mixed in China, what we do see in the property market is a high level of bond defaults, land sales have collapsed, and the property market has been a huge driver both of economic growth but also fiscal sustainability for the local governments because land sales make up about 40% of revenue and then property-related taxes add on top of that to local government revenue. It's not difficult to construct an argument that under 
Xi Jinping's guidance, the economy has taken a really substantial turn for the worse and arguably is actually a threat to party authority now. Do you think that we're going to see a change in policy tone after this Congress? Is it a case that he just wants to maintain the status quo up to November and then come November, he can sort of perform U-turns on policy with pretty much impunity because, you know, there's then this long period before his authority can be challenged again. My own view is that Xi Jinping really is a party purist. I think he feels quite impassioned about the corruption, the endemic corruption that was evident at the outset of his term. When Hu Jintao handed over the reins to Xi Jinping, that was in the wake of a massive period of largesse, economic largesse in China, which has produced some of the problems, some of the pressures that you've just described, Stuart. So property bubbles, massive inflated prices in China's urban centers, which pushes out all but the richest and the top of the elite in China. We saw provincial debt really growing as well, and fiscal problems in the provinces, which might not necessarily have been reported up to the center in in a clear way, which actually seems to be a sort of systemic problem for China even prior to the rise to power of, of the Communist Party. But more recently, we've seen Xi Jinping insisting on the partification, if you like, of the private sector. So in China, corporations and foreign investors find themselves um, having to appoint party representatives within their own organizations. We've also seen huge magnates like Jack Ma disappearing off the radar screen for his challenges to the dual circulation and, and the marketization agenda. So Alex, really, then, if what you're saying is correct, and he really is ideologically driven, then those people who are sitting there saying, well, come November things will get better because basically whatever happens, Xi Jinping can just relax a bit and adopt a more pragmatic approach. In your view, that's not going to happen, that this is ideologically driven and people need to start reading some Xi Jinping thought to understand what's going on in his mind because he's telling us that he is a Marxist-Leninist and that that's the way the economy is going to be structured. That's right. And he's also built a cult of personality as well, as well as purging the party. So the price of abandoning that puritanical approach to leadership could mean factional rivalry challenges, potential challenges to his own legacy and directly to himself. And that, that's something that I don't think he's prepared to tolerate at all. And we've seen this tightening up happening over the last couple of years, if not longer. The economic Tsar, if you want to call him that, Liu He, has been under enormous pressure, particularly since the COVID outbreak. But I think Xi's vision is this sort of dream of rejuvenation, and he will not sacrifice anything, particularly any corrosion of his power base. So I, I think this is set to continue. It may be come the National People's Congress you know, with a roadmap for the next five years, there'll be a plan for China's economic development coming out of the National People's Congress. And there'll be hints of, of what that will be in the 20th Party Congress uh, report as well. 
So everybody needs to be watching quite carefully in November what's said after the Congress and machinations as there's preparations for the National People's Congress, the two meetings, as I described earlier, in March next year. But I think if you look at the COVID zero approach, which is ongoing, and the deliratus effect that's had on China's economy, and an absolutely unswerving position by Xi Jinping on, on that, I think that's a good indication of how he intends to push ahead in the next five-year cycle. At this point, though, I I should say that it almost seems to be a received wisdom that Xi Jinping is going to go on for a third term. I'd like to stick my neck out and say, well, he might stick to party regimen and actually step down. He might not necessarily emerge from behind that red curtain in November. He may have had enough, but if he does do that, he needs to be satisfied that the people he's put into the standing committee are going to secure his legacy and protect his own interests. And also protect him as an individual, because surely he's made up quite a few enemies. Yeah. There's anti-corruption campaign, reducing the size of the army. Uh, There's a lot of people that will be out to get him if he leaves office. Yeah, absolutely. All of the loyalties that have been associated with key figures who've been victims of the Tigers and Flies campaign, taking down, you know, not just your communal garden party members at, at, at a rural level who are rampantly corrupt, perhaps, but taking down those key figures who wielded huge amounts of power in China at the outset of his term in 2013. People like Zhou Yongkang and, and others, which created huge reverberations within the party leadership. And it destroyed people's fortunes whether that was potentially built on corruption or otherwise. The, the new lineup, I think, it'll be full of, of sea loyalists, I imagine. Okay, so we talked about what this might mean for the economy, but in terms of China's global position and, and its a relationship with the rest of the world, what are the sort of different ways that you think that the Congress could take China with its relationship with the outside world? Well, I think, I think the first key one to mention is the Global Security Initiative, which is clearly a roadmap for presenting an alternative approach to global governance with Chinese characteristics. But inbuilt into that is something called the China Plan, the, the Zhongguo Fang'an, and this idea of the supremacy of the China way. And also implied in that is the moribund nature of the global order, which has been constructed by the West in the wake of World War II and, and subsequently in the wake of the Cold War. I think Xi and his acolytes have been promoting this idea of the decline of the West and the rise of the East. So what we'll see is a push, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, but elsewhere in the developing world, we all know of the global South agenda. I think we'll see China being much more aggressive, pushing its own blueprint for governance and development there, but also securing the world with Chinese characteristics. So we all know that the People's Liberation Army has been really building up its capabilities with some powerful new platforms. And I think what we'll see in the next 10 years is, as part of the Global Security Initiative, the People's Liberation Army really moving out globally to secure or to consolidate China's security interests around the globe. Recently, 
Xi Jinping has published another book, a fourth volume on governance. Which you've read, right? <laughs> I think I'd struggle to get through even the first couple of chapters of his, of his first volume. But he's published, I think, nine books over the last year or so. And, and his fourth volume on governance is there. I think the diehards and those who, who really want to dive into this book, they may find hints of his global outlook. There's also the Global Development Initiative as well, and there's the Green Belt and Road Initiative. I think those sort of things will be invigorated at the National People's Congress in March, whether or not she is there or not at, at the helm. It's, it's an enormous challenge for China, but I think this idea of rise of the East, decline of the West, that's something that's been adopted in party propaganda and what's being promulgated domestically, whether or not the broader Chinese population believes that is, is, is a different question. But that's what the, the Communist Party will be pushing. Alex, just finally, to round off, I can also ask one very blunt question. If Xi Jinping does not come out behind that curtain, and it's because there has been some sort of power struggle and effectively uh, some behind-the-scenes coup, who is likely to be the next chairman of the Politburo Standing Committee. And if he doesn't come out from behind the curtain, but it's because he's actually secured his legacy, who would you expect to see leading the Standing Committee then? Well, if C doesn't come out from behind the curtain, then I think a character, Chen Minar, who I mentioned earlier, I mean, he's been a favourite for taking over the reins of the Communist Party, and, and he's certainly been nurtured as one of those top favourites. The other one is, is Li Qiang, who is party secretary of Shanghai, and, and of course, that being the economic powerhouse of China, I think Li Qiang could be potentially another general secretary of the Communist Party. But going back to these challenges to Xi Jinping, there are rumours that Premier Li Keqiang has been pushing for Hu Chunhua, who's a vice premier currently uh, looking after China's agriculture, apparently. That's a possibility. But it's a fiendishly difficult and, and probably something that's better placed within the, the bookies' offices than, than the likes of myself. But th those are three names who I think could be there, whether or not Xi Jinping is, comes out from behind the curtain or not. Well, one thing we can say is that I think based on what you're, uh, you've described, the next five years after this Congress are going to be incredibly important for both Chinese economy and China's place in the world. So we need to wait with bated breath who's going to come out from behind that curtain in exemplary political theatre style. And we can then perhaps have another conversation at that point and see what that means for the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Sam. And thanks very much indeed, Alex, for, for joining us for a second time on What China Wants. Uh, it's a great pleasure to speak to your audience again and um and thank you very much for some very adroit questions it's a fascinating topic and as the summer draws to an end it'll be really interesting to look at the outcomes of the party congress and then later on perhaps in the year we can talk again when when things have crystallized a bit great goodbye